again, if you are a, a visitor here, I'd like to welcome you. Um, please do stay behind at the end. We've got tea and coffee. Uh, just one or two things to mention. Next Sunday morning, can you turn me down just a wee bit, Stephen, because I'm getting a big echo. Um, next Sunday morning, it's pre-Christmas, but it's also, we're going to have a baptism of uh, Joseph and Eva Grigg. So just remember that next Sunday morning. And also on Tuesday is the, the ladies' meal. And I hope you've signed up for that. If you haven't, feel free to do so. And then on Monday, uh, because of the ladies' meal on the Tuesday, the knit and natter is, has been changed to the Monday. And if you're interested in, in that, either of those, just uh, speak to us at the door. And then I do want to uh, remember especially the Christmas services next Sunday. We've got a, a carol service with a musical presentation, Your Light Has Come. That will be at 6 p.m. next Sunday. And uh, we've got a Christmas Day service at 11. Uh, and this year, we have an innovation. We have mince pies from 10.30. So um, it'd be good to see you there. The, uh, please do take advantage of Christmas. As Donald was praying, sometimes people uh, misunderstand and misuse and so on. But I was in a home this week, and uh, the children do not go to church at all. Only one of the parents does. And... Uh, that parent was absolutely delighted because their daughter is taking part in the school nativity and as part of the nativity had learnt Isaiah chapter 9, huge part of it. And uh, the wee girl uh, was so proud, she stood and recited the whole thing to me. And I had to admit that as a minister, she knew it better than I did. <laughs> I had to look at it just to check. So I was just, it was, del- it was delightful and it's God's word. And no matter how it gets out, we know that his word won't return to him void. So speaking of that, let's turn to that word. And we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 49. And um, in the providence of God, we've been going through Isaiah. I didn't plan this, but um, in the providence of God, uh, I think this is very, very appropriate for Christmas as well. It's the second servant song, Isaiah chapter 49 from verse 1 to Verse 6. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I think many of you here will know who Mark Zuckerberg is. Um, I need to get to know him a wee bit better because uh, he has just announced that he is going to give away 99% of his 
wealth in Facebook. He's the founder of Facebook, or one of the founders, and his shares are apparently worth 45 billion. So, billion, I said, not million. So that will help cover the church building debt, uh, I'm sure. But in his letter to his daughter, Max, who's just been born, in whose name he's doing this, he says that this will help achieve a world without suffering from disease. People will be connected, probably through Facebook, so that we will have access to every idea, person, and opportunity. All people will be of equal value. We will advance human potential. Everyone will be empowered. Everyone will have the same opportunity. Everyone will live in inclusive, healthy communities. Sounds great. Sounds just fantastic. And it's complete rubbish, like the giving. Because the giving is not to a charitable company, it's to another company that he's setting up. And he will uh, receive considerable tax relief from that. More wealth, he will still have more wealth than any human being ever needs. And yet this idealistic fantasy of a world, he says, he actually says in the letter that in a hundred years' time, we could have no disease or sickness. We're going to live forever, all of us. We're all going to be able to fly first class. I'm planning to go and visit my daughter in Australia, and I see these uh, Emirates adverts about how peasants, you know, fly in economy class and get bags of peanuts. But if you go first class in Emirates, you get a shower and a bar on the plane, and you get, you know, I mean, to me, that's just incomprehensible. But is Mr. Zuckerberg saying we're all going to fly first class? There'll be no second class, no disease, no illness. It's fantasy, and it's it's not true. It's not going to happen. Now, when I say something like that, people go, "Ah, that's just sour grapes." You know, you're Scottish, or 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 you're Christian. It's the church. Is the church going to do any better? You're just being cynical. Well. I'm glad you said that because that's what we're going to look at. What is the real answer to the difficulties and problems of the world? Now, in Isaiah, the passages we've been looking at at the moment, up to the moment, have been kind of saying that Israel was meant to be an answer, but Israel failed miserably. It failed miserably. Israel is useless as the servant. You are my servant, verse 3 says, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But Israel has been useless. So this is the second servant song, and it points us to God's answer to the problem of suffering and disease, to the problem of inequality, to the problem of uh, oppression and violence, to the problem of our human sin, and the answer is in Christ. So let's look at that. First of all, let's think about Uh, Jesus, what it tells us about Jesus. Now, verse 1, listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. That is fascinating because he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Jewish people and he's talking to the Jewish people. And he says the vision is much, much wider than that. There's an outward-looking focus And that's important for us to remember at Christmas because I think we we become very inward-looking and very self-obsessed. 
And I think it's right for us to look out to the world and to see Christ as the light of the world. Now this is a song that is about Christ. And so he goes on to say this extraordinary thing. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. The birth of Jesus is such an incredible thing, what we call the incarnation. He is the Messiah. He is the called one. He is the chosen one. What is God's answer to the question of suffering? What is God's answer to the question of pain and sorrow and grief and all the consequences of sin? God's answer is Christ. He's sending a Messiah called and chosen. By the way, if you see this, if you understand this song as it is, uh, rightly understood as a song of the servant, then just imagine Christ reading this and, and Christ understanding this of himself. He was called and chosen. He was human. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Earlier, Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Galatians 1, 15, Paul says this, but when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Christ was set apart from birth. Interesting, actually, the language that's used there, the virgin will be with child, give birth to a son. Paul talks about he set me apart from birth. The Bible clearly teaches what I think more and more we understand scientifically, but because of politics, we can't accept it, that the child in the womb is a child. Paul existed in the womb. Jesus existed in the womb. And if Mary had aborted Jesus, she would have been killing the Son of God. Now, that's an extraordinary thing. It's an incredible thing that Christ would come as an embryo, that Christ would be a fetus, that Christ would be a baby going through all the stages in the womb and being born and being a baby, and everything that is involved with that. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. There are lots of people who have lots of difficulty with the idea of God coming as a human being, and so they should. Because it's such an incredible idea. It's such an astonishing idea. It's such a wonderful idea. And if we're Christians and we're saying, yeah, of course it happened. Now let's get on with everything else. You're missing just how incredible it actually is. In fact, there's a sense in which an atheist who goes, nah, I just can't see it. That's just so incredible. That doesn't, I, I don't get it. It's maybe being a little bit more honest than someone who says, yeah, yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Or, um, as I heard this morning, someone arguing strongly, this is just myth. It's just myth, but it's myth that teaches us. And I'm going, if it's myth, it teaches me nothing. Because the point of it is, 
This is God come in human flesh. God's answer is, from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Now again, what's interesting here is that no name is mentioned. It's it's very, it's almost like teasing. This is what he's like, he's saying. This is what he's like. He made my mouth like a sharpened arrow and so on. But what's his name? Well, Mary is told his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But here, verse 3, we're told his name is Israel. You are my servant, Israel. How is that possible? Since Israel had turned away. Because Christ becomes the real Israel. And it helps you to understand this, and it helps you to understand the whole Bible, if you realize that terms like Israel and Christ and then the church are interchangeable. If you are in Christ, for example, then you are the true Israel. God is concerned with his people. And his people are the islands and the nations and um, not just one tribe. We, if we are believers in Jesus, are given his name. We are Christ's ones. And what is said about Christ becomes true of those who are in Christ. And look at the attribute, verse 2, that he's given. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Now, in others of the songs, there'll be an emphasis on Christ as the priest or Christ as the king. But here the emphasis is on Christ as the prophet. The word of God. He will proclaim the word of God. That's why at the beginning, in verse 1, it says, listen to me, you islands. And the islands were considered to be the remotest parts of the world. What is Christ's weapon? How does a Christian fight jihad? The weapon is the word of God. Our battle is a spiritual battle. And he uses two pictures here. One of a sword and one of an arrow. The sword, because the sword is sharp and it's clear. And the word of God is not confused The word of God is not woolly. The word of God is not something that's vague and indistinct. The word of God is very clear. Which is why when over Christmas you'll get people who stand up and waffle on. I read something. I won't even say by who and I won't even say in which church magazine. But I read something in a church magazine. And I read it and I just looked at it and I went, how on earth does anyone accept such waffle without being high? You know, it was just ridiculous. It was just meaningless garbage. And, you know, the word of God, you're thinking the the big long words and the elongated, the spirituality this and Mesopotamia this and da-da-da this. And you're thinking, how does that bring any hope to anybody? And I think the person who wrote it thought that they were being spiritual and thought that they were making the word of God clearer and they were just making it just a massive, confused mess. And Jesus says, I don't do that. Jesus is the one who brings his word. It's like a sharpened sword. It's also like a, an arrow. What does the arrow signify? Well, in those days, the arrow signified, the sword was for close combat. The arrow signified distance. And it's saying that God's word <coughs> penetrates and reaches everywhere. The arrow was penetrating and powerful. 
Isaiah 1.20, if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's word is suitable for us all. Jesus was to come to bring us God's word, and he does. Ephesians 6, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, if you're part of a church or you hear something where people want to do the nativity scene, they want the baby, they want the donkeys, they want the wise men, they want the shepherds, but they don't want the word, then it's not the nativity. Jesus came as the son of God to bring us his word. Now he came to die for us, that's that's true also. And he came to be our king. But he came to bring us his word. And from that baby in the womb, that baby in the manger, comes the clear word of God. People say, well, if only God would speak to me, if only God would do this, if only God would answer. And the answer is, well, he has. He has. He's brought light to the world. It's no point us saying, if only God would speak, if we put our fingers in our ears and refuse to listen. Then it's hidden. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me, concealed me in his quiver. The sword sheathed until the right time. The arrows put away until the right time. That's why we cry out that the Lord would reveal himself through his word. But Calvin also has an interesting idea here as well. When he talks about the arrows and the sword being in the quiver, And he says, they're there for protection. And putting this forward, not just to Christ, but also to Christ's church, and in particular, to those who preach Christ's word, Calvin says this, and indeed, amid so many dangers, it is almost miraculous that a single preacher of the gospel is permitted to remain. Now, why is that? What does the devil hate more than anything else? The devil couldn't care two hoots what we do. As long as we don't proclaim Jesus Christ and as long as we don't proclaim his word. But when we proclaim his word, he reacts viciously. Calvin goes on to say this. The reason is, the reason that these preachers, if you like, are protected is that the Lord guards guards them by his shadow and hides them as arrows in his quiver that they may not be laid open to the assaults of enemies and destroyed. Please do pray for those of us who preach because there is a tremendous pressure and a tremendous temptation and a tremendous bias in our culture which, which says, you can't say that. You mustn't say that. You have to compromise. And if you dare go against it, then there's enormous pressure that is made to bear. God's word is hidden and has to be revealed and it is revealed. And why? You are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. And he uses a word there for beauty which is used only 13 times in the Old Testament. And nine of these are in Isaiah. 
Isaiah is obsessed with the beauty of God and the beauty of Christ. And Jesus Christ is for the display of God's glory. Now, we've got a young baby down at the front here. And I, for me, I, I confess I'm quite ignorant about babies. I love them. absolutely love them. But I don't think I would, I don't often look at a baby and go, oh, looks just like Gareth or just like Sally. Um, sometimes you can see that. Sometimes there's, a, there's a, a baby and you look, oh my goodness, you can tell where they came from. Um, that's, you know, there's no doubt about my son that he is his mother's daughter. There's no doubt he's my son either, but not by looking at him, uh, just to confirm that. Um, but you look at them and you just go, sometimes you can, you can look at a baby and you can go, wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You can see where they came from. Look at that nose. You can just see that. Well, the, the sense of, in terms of Christ is when you look at Christ, you are seeing the Father and you are seeing the beauty of God. Christ is for the display of God's glory. You are my servant in whom I will display my splendor. And again, I think of that interaction, and I have to be quite careful here because it's very holy ground, but I think of that interaction between the Father and the Son. You are my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It, it, it's, it's an extraordinarily um, intimate and an extraordinarily beautiful picture. Imagine Jesus as a child, as a boy in the temple, reading this. You are my servant in whom I will display my splendor. And incidentally, that's also for the church. The church is for the display of God's glory. Again, we reflect Christ. But it's not all good, because look at verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. There are people who go, well, wait a minute. This means that this must be about Israel. It can't be about Jesus. Because would Jesus ever say, I've spent my strength for nothing. I have labored in vain. Would Jesus ever experience that feeling of discouragement and, and brokenness that you and I can identify with? Well, not the Jesus of myth, but the Jesus of reality, yes. This is Christ in his humiliation. He was weak and tempted in all points, just as we are. Was he not tempted to despair? In Gethsemane, what did he say? My, let this cup pass from me? On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered shame. He suffered grief. He suffered agony. He suffered trembling. He suffered fear. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Sometimes we look at the world and we're in despair. Sometimes we look at the circumstances and everything around and what we've done and we think, what's the point? Of all that, do you never think that Christ went through that as well? I'm sure of it. I'm absolutely certain of that. Now, Jesus' response to that was to place his times into God's hand. What is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. He trusted himself to no man because he knew the hearts of men. The gospel will always be resisted. Always be resisted. But the gospel always wins through. 
So he comes as the prophet. Then verses 5 and 6. He comes as the restorer of Israel and the light of the world. Now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Israel, those of you who know your biblical history, was an individual. And Israel became a nation. And Israel, in order to be saved, became an individual again in Christ. And then Israel went to the world. All are not Israel, they're of Israel. Israel is God's people. And that's what Christ came to do. It's like this this funnel where the reason for the chosenness of the Jewish people was entirely that Christ would come through them. It was all leading up to him. And he will bring back the lost sheep of Israel and those from other flocks. Now, if you read somewhere... uh, In Romans 9, 10, and 11, for example, I still think that the Bible teaches that there is a special place for the Jewish people, and we are to pray for the Jewish people. And I think that's why the Jewish people, of all peoples in the world, are the most persecuted. You know, they're a tiny group of people, and yet, what happens? Who are the people who are most under threat? It's the Jews. And it is our responsibility to pray for the Jews. Now, I'm not going to um, go the the line that some people go and uh, identify all modern Israel with the Israel of the Bible and so on, the political nation state of Israel and so on. I mean, the nation state of Israel is amazing. But what we're talking about here is as God's people, not their location. And Paul's desire for his own people, the Israelites, was that they would be saved. And he believed that with a coming in of the Jewish people, there'd be an even greater blessing to the Gentiles. I know many people who have believed this, and in in history, and in this nation in Scotland, it was a very strong thing in the church as well. And and in this church, McShane and others, the Boners, they believed that there was a special blessing in uh, praying for and seeking to help the Jewish people and pray for the Jewish people. And that's maybe one thing to do over Christmas. Pray that they would come to see the Messiah. There are many Jewish people who are coming to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and that can only be good for the world. But Jesus is going to restore his people, Jacob and Israel. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and God has been my strength. Here, the whole idea is the covenant relationship with God, Jesus being honored and his people being honored. And our desire is that God would be glorified and that Christ would be glorified. And then it expands because he says, he says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And that's the end of the song because this is where it ends at verse six. Um, Reflects the beginning. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Jesus is God's salvation. 
the Jewish question, the question that was being asked at the time that Isaiah prophesied by the Jewish people was, oh Lord, how are you going to restore us to Jerusalem? How are you going to rebuild the temple? How are you going to take us back? And God says, through my servant, but the work, that work which you consider to be too great is too small for my servant. My servant is going to come and reach the ends of the earth. And here's the astonishing thing. God had in mind nations that the Jewish people probably didn't even know about. They may have known about China. But he has in mind China and Malaysia and Australia and South Africa and South America and the United States. He has in mind literally the whole world. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The world is in darkness and Jesus is the light. I actually like this time of year for different reasons. I used to hate it, to be honest. Preferred New Year. But more and more as I go on, I like it. Um, and especially here in the, the northern hemisphere where it gets darker and darker and darker. Next Sunday will be the darkest day. Um, I, I don't mean that literally, I hope. Well, no, I do mean it literally. Uh, I don't mean it metaphorically. Uh, it will be the darkest day. Next Sunday will be the darkest day. And then, hallelujah, you know, the, the, the days start getting longer, you know. And you say, oh, the days are extending out now when you get to, to Christmas. But it's dark, isn't it? And it's, I mean, it's all right today when there's, what, six hours of sunshine. But when you've got to have the lights on in your house at three in the afternoon, because it's so dreek outside, you know, that's why, I, actually, Christmas and the whole image of light is so good. I actually like walking along the street. Not all the garish Santa Claus lights and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. If that's your thing, do it. Just don't do it in my street. But I like, I like the kind of, the sort of Jewish candle lights and the Christmas tree lights, the plain lights and all that kind of stuff. And, and it, it's because it's a fantastic picture. It's a fantastic image. Jesus is the light of the world. It's like you put up your Christmas tree and we did that yesterday without too many fights and uh, you untangle your Christmas tree lights. And again, the more I go on, the more I just like the simple uh, white lights, you know, and Basically, you put the decorations on the tree, you know, the baubles and the angels and whatever it is, but without lights, you don't even really see them. You just take a photograph of them and, and send it to your door. Where's the light? There's no light. We need the light. Now, in this world, Jesus comes and he brings his light. The world is in darkness. I think there's so much that is wonderful in this. And I think that Ironically, when we're garish about Christmas, when we're greedy about Christmas, when we're way too super sentimental and stuff about Christmas, when we, we obscure Christ, and yet we should be uh, taking the opportunity to proclaim and live Christ. So, summarize it this way. Israel is the true de designation of the true people of God, the church. Christ is the head of the church. If we are in Christ, then we too are servants and sons and daughters of the king. We too are called from the womb. 
And for me, here's the amazing thing. Christ didn't just come into the world to speak when he began his ministry age 30 and then it finished when he died three years later. Christ came into the world and he continues to speak. And sometimes he speaks really strong words. But he wounds, as the Song of Solomon puts it, he wounds with love. If only God would speak. Well, he does. Return to uh, where we came in just to finish Mr. Zuckerberg. I don't know his motives. I don't know what he was trying to do. I think the Bible is right when it says that if you do your good works, you don't, you don't proclaim them all over Facebook. Uh, I, I think that the cynicism is justified and right. But even supposing that his motives were absolutely pure, the fantasy of what he offers is ludicrous compared, and people go, ah, oh, well, you're, you're you're believing in a, in a child in a, in a womb uh, and who's the son of God. Is that not fantasy? No, not if it's true. And how it works out and so on, it makes so much more sense. And I just want to encourage each of us to think about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And maybe for those of you who are Christians, maybe just two aspects involved with that. Back to the, the, I said I've labored in vain, the discouragement that you feel. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. See, Jesus knows and understands your discouragement, your despair, your, your frustration with other people, your temptation to give up your temptation to walk away. How does he know that? Because he can read your mind? No. He knows it because he felt it, because he experienced it. And you know that when someone's been through the same thing, you can then approach them. And that's why it goes on to say, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That is the wonder of the incarnation, that we can approach the almighty God with somebody who is like us, but not. And then Matthew 29 says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the earth. At a very precise time, at a very precise spot, a spot which would be identified if you come this evening, um, you'll see this this evening, uh, the star, and it's just an amazing story about what the star actually is. But at a very precise spot, at a very precise time, the Son of God was revealed as a baby in order that from that spot and from that time, his glory would be extended and proclaimed, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel, not just in the Middle East, but all over the world. And this Christmas, there will be people who are genuinely worshiping Jesus in every single nation of the world. And I don't believe that that will ever change. In fact, I think that that will increase. 
So please do take the opportunity to tell people the extraordinary story of the God who became man. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for your word. Thank you that though it was given to Isaiah and though it came to a people who are very different from us in a place far away at a time that we know very little about, yet it is your word to us today as much as it was to them then. We ask that you would be with each one of us, that those of us who don't know you would commit our way to follow you, and that those of us who do, that when we are faced with darkness and discouragement, when the dark thoughts of the mind or the overwhelming emotions of the heart threaten to swamp us, that we would lift our eyes and we would see the light of the world and know that light shining in our own hearts and minds. For we ask it in your name. Amen.